I think it's like, it's so hard to watch patients or, or dying individuals struggle against death. It's just like, it's just, it's, it's like heartbreaking. It's more heartbreaking than death, right? Hello and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? Rabbits are things that, you know, jump around on the internet. They don't always have, shall we say, I don't know, a lot of depth. This is heavy things done lightly. Watar, why are we talking about rabbits? Today is the initial installment of From the Field. That's where our pod looks at old world, new world ideas that hit heavy. We try to talk about them lightly, but with our field workers, with First Things Foundation field workers, people who I love and who you will find fascinating and know from the field is not just them saying, hey, look at my project. You should pay money for it. Nope. You'll see. Oh, no. We take an angle, an interesting angle, investigate it as per the deep, most heavy parts of a person's life called a field worker, turn them over and discuss life. On Watar from the field series episode one with Isabella Copeland in Appalachia. So, Isabella, welcome to Watar. I mean, in some ways, you're behind the scenes on Watar because you're out there in the field. Where are you right now as you as we speak? Yep, I'm in Appalachia in Bakersville, North Carolina. I'm currently in my landlord's basement because the power went out the first time we record this. It sure did. And but you're not from Western Carolina. You're not from Appalachia, right? No, I'm originally from a small town outside of San Diego in Southern California. It's called mm. Julian, California. So Julian, California yeah. to New Mexico for college, St. John's College, yep. which we can talk about, yeah. uh, to Naples, and then we recruited you for first things. And now you're in the field, sort of like a Peace Corps volunteer, but doing, how would you describe what you do with first things at this point? Um, when people ask me what I do, I say small project development with an emphasis on getting to know the community that I'm working with in an intimate mm. way before trying to do anything, right. um, anything serious. There you are. Yeah. But this is Watar. Why are we talking about rabbits? So rabbits, you know how it goes. You've heard all about this. But basically, rabbits are things that kind of quickly reproduce on the interwebs. And maybe they're not that deep of an idea. So we're going to try to go a little heavy, but lightly and introduce you to people, but also have you as a guest because you're an expert on something. So here's my question. I know because I know you that before you came to First Things, you got involved somehow in Naples, Florida as a sort of a chaplain at 22 mm -hmm. dealing with dying people mm -hmm. that can you tell us what, what was that and why, how did you get this job of yours? Yeah. So I graduated from St. John's college with a liberal arts philosophy degree um, in the spring slash summer of 2020. And we all know what was happening around that time. Mm. Um, so there weren't many good job prospects. And 
Um, it wasn't a plan that I had. Um, anyone who knows me personally would be like, what? Bella didn't have a plan. Um, but no, Bella did not have a plan. Um, so I drove all the way from California to Naples, Florida to live with my now fiance. Um, he was teaching at the time. Um, and now we work together for first things, which is also an interesting thing to talk about. But um, I moved down there. I got a very nice job making bagels at Brooklyn Dough with a Hole. Shout out to Brooklyn Dough with a Hole in so Naples. Brooklyn Dough with a Hole, that's your first job out of college. Yeah. Um, handmade New York style bagels, but in Florida. Um, check them out. Um, and then I was presented with this opportunity. It sort of found me to do a unit of CPE, which is clinical pastoral education at um, a hospital in Naples. CPE. Um, yes. Clinical pastoral education. And that, that feels heavy to me as in you're being trained to be a pastor. Um, it's, it's a bit confusing. It's, it's basically to be a chaplain. Most people who were doing the training with me had been pastors or are pastors or are deep within their own religious community mm -hmm. um, and are looking, looking to expand their service and the types of people they can reach. Um, but I was a sort of non-denominational I guess I believe in God, 23 year old who just sort of came in. Um, and I was like, sure, teach me how to be a chaplain, um, which is essentially like teach me how to have long, deep conversations with people who don't maybe necessarily want to talk about their feelings. I love that. And um, how long was your training to teach you how to have long, deep conversations? Was that a six week um, training? It was a six month training. Um, oh. six months for one unit and you need four units before you can be a board certified chaplain. It's wait, pretty... wait, the chaplain's being certified by a board, like at yeah, the hospital I board gotten to that stage, obviously, but yeah, you can be board certified. It's a whole, it's a whole thing to be a chaplain. Yeah. Are they certifying what God you believe in or is that irrelevant? They certify, um, the, depth of training that you've received and the amount of experience that you've had in being a chaplain and working one-on-one -on -one with patients in hospitals. So. so it's not really about what you're saying about death. It's more like mm -hmm. how you're saying it. Is that what they're training you in? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a training that um, teaches you what to do in a variety of different circumstances because every single patient interaction is always different. Um, there's like, there's not a formula. There's not, mm. there's not like a way to like get someone to talk to you. Um, there's not, definitely not a formula for how to pray with people. That's, that was a whole thing. I, I had to like, I don't get the training, but what the heck, why would you go do this at 22? Like, I'm going to go down and talk to dying people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I essentially was looking for something to push me to make big life choices 
instead of oscillating in my twenties. Mm. Um, I wanted to experience death sort of firsthand, even though obviously I'm still alive. It wasn't my own death. Um, I wanted to experience other people's deaths. Um, wow. And yeah. And I wanted that experience to push me into making some decisions in life about what I believe, what the meaning of life is and therefore how I'm going to like proceed to live my life. Yeah. Where did that come from? This insight that I really need to be exposed to this heavy death moment. Why most people go the other way. Um, that's a good question. Cause I haven't, I would just say that it's maybe a me thing. I tend to get pretty serious about things pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also an offshoot of my, my um, college education because I studied philosophy. And so it was a jump from, you know, studying the meaning of life theoretically to studying the meaning of life practically. Huh. Right. Yeah. And that, that jump from like reading to experience, um, which I found, I think it's pretty necessary for, it, for bookish people. And so the experience was in that room that you beheld and that you entered where people were dying. So what happened? Like, what was it like? What, what did people say? And and you're 22 and how did you respond? Um, Yeah. So, so not always people were dying. Sometimes I would have patients to visit who, who just wanted to talk. Um, you know, they were, they came in for some tests and then they're on the upswing and they just, you know, like some reassurance. Um, but I see. some, uh, the other part of the job, aside from like doing rounds and visiting patients on the floor, I was assigned. Um, I was also on call at least one night a week. So I stayed in this on-call apartment and if anyone in the hospital was going to die, I would get a page to show up and sometimes I wasn't needed. Um, sometimes, sometimes I was needed. Wait, um, the apartment was held by the hospital near the floor where you would visit where it, like, it was like a little like staging house. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a little apartment, a very easy walk away from the hospital. With a bed. Yeah. So I so would you- like be sleeping sleeping peacefully, then get this loud page that was like, someone's dying. You have to show up. And then I would go show up dazed in the middle of the night. Um, Wow. And and then it would begin some sort of counseling with someone, maybe not even the dying person. They probably are unconscious, right? Usually like at that point, if you're, yeah, it's usually not the dying or dead person. It's usually a, a loved one conversation um and it's like you kind of have to always like you don't have any prior information so you sort of suss out like okay what denomination are these people um because if they're catholic they're gonna ask you to get in contact with a priest in the area for last i see okay so you're like a conduit at that point yeah when you're with a catholic you're usually a conduit (laughs) like you're usually the middle person to get the priest um can you just start ripping some Catholic prayers? 
Um, you well, so that Did was a whole thing that? for me. It was a whole interesting transition I made because I started off the the six month program being a sort of non denominational kind of Christian person who was just you know oscillating around, and then over the course of the the six months, I got very um, very heavily on the path to being baptized in the Orthodox Church, which I'm still on that path. Hmm. Um, and so I went from Orthodox the, Christian in this case. Orthodox Christian. Got yes. it. Um, I started off being this person who was like, I'll pray in whatever way you best desire and that I can deliver to you. So, you know, if you're with Catholics, you would you know, do like a Hail Mary in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit thing. Right. If you're with someone Protestant, you would only pray in Jesus's name. You know, like you sort of cater to the different, um, and in Naples, Florida, a lot of people are Christian. So I didn't have too many interactions with, um, with anyone Muslim or anything. That was my question. Was it yeah. all sort of, mm, sort of Western Christian flavors in general from atheist to, to whatever? Yeah. I think that had to do with the area I was in. I see. You know, a lot of. A lot of people, uh, white people from the Midwest who yeah. have moved out to Florida. So that's pretty much what you get. Um, Were there people who didn't, people get upset with you? Like, get out of here. Who are you? Yeah. Sometimes you would go into a room and people uh, wouldn't even talk to you. You would I'd come in. My, my, my opening line was like, hi, my name is Isabella. I'm a chaplain here at, you know, here at XYZ Hospital, um, I'm here to support you in any way that that you need at this time. And sometimes people would just not. What are you wearing? Is there is there an outfit? Is there a chaplain outfit? Um, professional clothing? No, you don't wear scrubs. So like a button up collared shirt, pants that aren't jeans. Because nothing says God counseling like a buttoned up yeah. polo shirt. Yeah. So interesting. Gosh, this is not old world at all. This is super new world. We're going to get into that because yeah. this is filling some sort of new world gap when it comes to the mystery of death, right? Your job has been created to fill a gap that has been created since the enlightenment to say, what is death about? Let's not think about it. It feels like somebody went, let's create a person who will walk into a room and fill the mystery gap but we don't know with what. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we can get into it. Now. Yeah. Like, d d am I getting that right? I mean, you experienced it. It was your heavy thing. So yeah. do I sound crazy? Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing I took away from every conversation I had at the hospital with any patient was just like there, these people don't have a solid foundation to fall back on at this time of sickness, recovering from sickness or death, mm. there's no foundation. There's no philosophical underpinning that's holding them up at this time. And so you come in as, as a, as part therapist and counselor, part religious, like, you know, ambiguous religious presence. Right. And you sort of like try to suss out the best way to like build some scaffolding to just sort of piece them together at that time. 
Um, I mean, and you're 22, so you can probably just whip that out, you know, from your life experience. What the heck? Yeah, it's incredible. It it really like, at least for me, it's just this in the face realization of like, these people don't have an understanding of like capital T truth. Like no one has that right now. Um, And then it like springboarded me into like, well, I got to find it. Like I spent a lot of time reading about it studying philosophy right right like, you've got to like live truth you can't just talk about it um so is it safe to say you were so there's a conversation that's profound that's happening in your head soul mind noose as you're doing this work it's happening at the same time in almost while touching their conversation in their own mind about their own death. In other words, there's like two spiral realities. There's yours. That's sort of going from, I think I know to, I don't know. And it's got to be happening to them at the same time, or at least to their loved ones. Could you meet in the room together in a space of vulnerability? Is that the point of your existence in the room is to be a person who can share in the vulnerability? What, what do they, what is the hospital think you're trying to accomplish? That's what I want yeah. to know. So the, the basic thing that I took away from the training was that it's, it's a chaplain's uh, goal to lead the patient and their loved ones to their own understanding of what is taking place. Mm, okay. To, to help them reveal it to themselves. It's very Freudian. Which it is. It's very like psychoanalytic. Um, and at the time, I definitely, I definitely sort of pushed back against that idea, um, mm. which is why I'm not continuing to, to study to be a chaplain, um, because it feels very, um, very New World American- independent, like I will find my own truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I sort of didn't jive with that idea very much. Mm-hmm. So I kind of pulled back from that. Um, and, and similarly, like over the course of the six months, I got more uncomfortable praying, you know, as I got more and more into the Orthodox tradition, I got very used to crossing myself and praying in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, et cetera, et cetera. But like, sometimes I would be with Protestant patients and I was like, I shouldn't do that with them. Mm -hmm. So like, I just started feeling myself not being able to do the chaplain job, basically. Right, right, right. Because you're serving a buffet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I I started eating only one thing at the buffet. Yeah, Um, yeah. Did you have moments of, uh, call it breakdown, but did you have moments of sort of, like anguish moments of crying. Did, what, what was the death experience doing to you in terms of just like right there at the moment, um, you know, mm-hmm. on a Monday after you visited a couple beds, like what was it like? What was happening to you? I mean, I don't, we don't have to get too into it, but like when you see a, a, a dead newborn child, like mm-hmm. that's like, Whoa, that's not right. Like it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Like that's supposed to be alive for sure. Um, and I guess I had some freaky instances where, um, 
where sort of around the moment that that a patient would would um, medically die, um, right? Their heart stopped beating or otherwise. Um, you get some weird feelings of like, there were three people in the room. Now it feels like there's only two. Like it feels like someone got up and left the room. Uh-huh. Um, I, and that was a little weird. That was, especially like if you pay attention whenever, you know, like when people pass, right. you start to like feel a weird and it doesn't happen maybe not every time they like medically die. Um, maybe it's like, it takes some time, but eventually you're like, Oh, I feel like someone left the room. Huh. And did you, did you have to, I mean, it was only six months. So maybe did you have to, did it become callous at some point where, Oh, there they go again. Or was it always sort of profound? Yeah. I mean, I tried to hold on. You want to hold on to the profoundness of the moment without getting lost in the emotions every time. Right. Without reliving like trauma. Right. Sort of push that, like don't latch onto that, but just live in the moment and like absorb the, the meaning of the moment. Um, yeah. So, so then it was your, so you had your own journey during all of this. And now you look back and dig into that question for us, for, especially for me. What is the secular hospital? What is the administration? Let's just call him Jim Stevens. I don't know. It doesn't matter what hospital. But Jim Stevens is at a big desk somewhere. And he's paying you guys. What's he paying you? I to- was unpaid. Wait, I'm going to make that clear. I was doing this unpaid. Oh, this was free. Um, I actually paid a, a, a small amount of money to participate in to the participate trade. in the death. I paid for this, John. You're like, what I need is a good dose of death. Yeah. Oh, and I'll pay you for it. Yeah, yeah. It's very, uh, it's very reflective of the times. Okay, so you're a volunteer now. Even first things is paying you a little. It's not a lot. I mean, you can buy a candy bar. Yeah, I'm moving up in the world. <laughs> so you went from one volunteer. Actually, you went from one job where you paid to now you're getting paid. Maybe your next job after first things will be where you can, you know, buy a full meal. It'd be exciting. Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> no, come on. So what do you think Jim Stevens is trying to do from his desk by creating this position? What is that? Because I'm, I'm guessing this isn't just it the Naples hospital where you were, my guess is this is other places. Yeah. Chaplains exist in hospitals and they work in um, police departments. Right. Like that. Yeah. Um, But this is a flavor of chaplaincy. For instance, the Catholic priest doesn't think he's a chaplain of the hospital. He just goes to the hospital. The Orthodox priest, he doesn't feel himself employed by NCH or even recruited by NCH, right? But you were sort of recruited by NCH. So what do they want you for? You want to open that up? I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting topic because um, chaplains have to do a lot of interpersonal work to be respected by the organizations that supposedly want them to be working with them. Mm. Um, Where, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, there, chaplains are obviously important because you need someone in the room who cares about the souls of the human beings, right? And like that's their job. 
at least even to be a witness to um what's mm. going on with people yeah yeah um, yeah like witnessing the moment was a big thing that we always talked about even if you're not necessarily needed um like doctors and nurses are like definitely needed um well in the practical material sense they're laying hands to something yeah. But you're a tool in there too, right? Of the hospital sort of establishment. There's something you are mm, providing, even if it's unseen. It feels like it's relationship. It feels like you're providing a relationship, not technical. Yeah. Yeah. And that is definitely something that I began to feel was lacking in just the hospital experience is this feeling that everything's connected. Mm. Um there's this disconnect between like the nurses checking in on the patients and the techs watching the patients and the, the people who come around and bring everyone food. There's just this disconnect between what's going on all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's one of the main like complaints of patients is like, I'll come into their room, introduce myself. And then their first thing is like, Oh my gosh, I've had the worst day. They got my meal wrong. The nurse hasn't come in to do this and that. It keeps saying I'm going for a test, but it's been delayed like five hours. What's going on? And then I'm just like, hey, I just showed up to pray with you. Like, mm. but I guess we'll talk about the this because patients scramble so hard to try to like find control of the situation. Right. In which they have no control at all. Yeah. And so Wow. So then this, uh, this whole experience, did it, did it help you find the big T that you were looking for big T truth? Did it help you f find a way to moor yourself? Because very few people at 22 have the gumption or maturity or whatever it is to go into that situation you did at intentionally in order to right in order to find something really profoundly spiritual to hold on to. So you did it and something good happened or something bad or something confusing. What happened? Yeah, I would definitely say I'm, I haven't fully resolved everything. I mean, that's kind of the supposed to like spend a whole life or something like that. Right. Resolve right. like, you know, being acquainted with death. Um, the Orthodox Christian church has helped immensely um, for many reasons and we could get into that or not, but yeah, I think the big thing has just been setting a goal. And the goal is that when death comes, you just sort of say, yeah, I've been waiting for this. And you just sort of, you just go with it. Yeah. Like, I think it's like, it's so hard to watch patients or, or dying individuals struggle against death. It's just like, it's just, it's, it's like heartbreaking. It's more heartbreaking than death. Right. Hmm. Like, yeah. That is insight. Yeah, and, but, and now you have that in your own toolkit. Like we hope, we hope that you remember that. Is that one of the great gifts that you've been given is to remember that, to remember death. Yeah, I think so. Definitely. Like I remember it all the time. Um, but not like in a Halloween kind of way. 
coming no, up. No, not the Halloween kind of way. <laughs> um, you know, Michael Myers is back. He's still alive. He, he, <laughs> he, he's not dead because now he's in a movie where he kills more people again. Yeah. Do you even know what I'm talking about? Like, I don't watch. He's like, I went to St. John's College in New Mexico. I don't watch Halloween movies. John. I don't really watch. Um, I don't really. I don't like scary movies. Actually, I'm very comfortable with like seeing dead bodies now. But I, you, it's actually been interesting. The more comfortable I became with like death in real life, the more uncomfortable I became with like, yeah, with like gory movies. I grew up loving gory oh, movies. Oh, oh, yeah. Um, and like. I, I still kind of do. I, I like dissecting animals, you know, when that happens in science class, but I've actually become more uncomfortable with it, which has been. It, do you think it's because there's something um, cheap about it? The gore becomes cheap and disassociated from the, from the actual soul and body. Yeah. What, what, how would you describe that? What's happening there? I think it's just like, like, when you watch a movie and like a character is killed off, it's, it's exciting in the plot, you know? And that's why it's like, Whoa, like in game of Thrones, like, you know, when someone dies, Whoa, but like you step, you take a step back and you're like, if that was real life, that person has died. Like Mm. their existence has ended. And like, that's extremely profound and not even, um, not even fictional stories tend to give death i think the weight that it deserves maybe harry potter maybe harry oh, potter interesting but. well let's let's do that let's so this is our first from the field podcast mm-hmm. uh in our podcast series from the field um if you're a person out there is going well what's and she can talk about first things no not so much you can see her blogs and you can see our work in Appalachia on our website. You can call us up and you'll even find Isabella's email in this pod notes if you want to contact her directly about her work or about her life. But I think we're going to try to introduce our field workers in this way, talking about something profound in their own life that they're an expert in that hopefully touches other people because that just did. We got to do a part two, I think. <laughs> There's something really um, pleasing about the way you describe that experience. It's helpful, at least to me. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think that's that's hopefully the goal of whenever you're confronted with something that challenges you. Um, you should process it to a point where you're like comfortable and mm. comfortable telling the story. Like you've made a narrative out of it hopefully not a false narrative, but like you've constructed the real life events into a story that you can tell yourself in a productive way to like help you understand yourself, like your identity in the world. basically. And it feels like your vulnerable identity. It feels like that kind of challenging experience, putting yourself in that, in that situation feels like you're going to have to leave saying I'm pretty vulnerable. I think that's the first thing's experience. I think when you went to Appalachia, you're supposed to say like, whoa, I don't really know what I'm doing. And I think that's a good thing. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm definitely having that experience all over again right now in Appalachia, trying to figure out like, wait a second, what is my job? 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, because you have to get in any situation where you're trying to interact with another person as to help that other person in some way, you have to be vulnerable. Like there's mm. no way you can't. Right. Yeah. Although I'll tell you, Isabella, I was not raised to be vulnerable. Few of us were, I think, in this light people land. I think that I think we're supposed to be more like Thor or something. Mm-hmm. I know that there's a narrative there where he is vulnerable like that's but i think the concept is we're supposed to overcome yeah you're only supposed to be vulnerable if the story ends heroically right 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 salvific in that one moment Mm -hmm. interesting yeah isabella copeland sharing heavy things lightly on from the field on watar like love do all these things what is andrew andrew what do you always tell me to say um click go to our website get on a kp journeys by the way those are fun you take trips to go visit the people that work in the field including isabel i think you know we are going to start to do weekend trips to appalachia to show people what we do but also to have them have these kind of deep heavy conversations done lightly with a delicious drink and some tasty food so like love Think about joining us for one of those short weekends. Think about joining us for a longer trip overseas and really think about supporting us at our website. Click become a reoccurring donor and change lives, including Isabella's because she can eat food, which is a good thing. All right. Uh, Knock bomb diesel. Au revoir. See you next time on Watar.